This is the Westbrook Community Church Sermon Series. Sunday, October 15, 2023. Gentle and lowly, happiness of Christ. Nate discusses the joy we can find through Christ's sacrifice for us. I haven't met before. My name is Nate Hayden, and I am the next-gen pastor, which means I work with kids and students, and I have a story about kids that I think everybody's going to understand. All the parents are definitely going to understand what I'm talking about. But even if you've just worked with kids, I think you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's this phenomena, and I, I don't know how kids get it, but every kid, it's almost innate as a part of being a kid, they love talking about the things that they like. They love telling you about their favorite things. And that is not surprising. Everybody understands that. Everybody likes talking about their favorite things. Kids have an innate ability, though. They, it's uncanny. They talk to you about their favorite things. They give you their list. They give you their top 10 at the least convenient times. Every parent will tell you that it's when you have to get in the car and you need to leave right now. That's when they they break down. Well, I really love this Star Wars character. And this Star Wars character, well, he's my favorite. Well, actually, I like this other character. And really, if I had to pick my top four, it'd probably be these four. And they're they're having this debate right in front of you. Um, It happens to me in kids' church pretty much every week about a variety of topics. Um, They always know, hey, Nate's about to teach the Bible lesson. I should tell him my favorite things right now. I should tell him everything that just happened this week. I, this is the most important thing right now. And so they'll come up to me and they, they, start to, they start to tell me and they go on and on and on. And I'm sitting here like, this is great. You know, I love connecting with kids. Also, I really got to teach this Bible lesson. Like, we're going to run out of time, right? And so everybody that's worked with kids understands that phenomenon. Kids talk about the things that make them happy. The funny thing, working with kids and students, we also see it with our high school students. Um, Everybody knows that I'm a Packers fan. I'm very open about that. I'm honest about that. And my students love to tell me about how they hate the Packers. They love to tell me about how the Vikings are better and Justin Jefferson's the best receiver and how dumb I am for being a Packers fan. And so um, I hate it when the Packers lose, right? But I really hate it because now I have high schoolers texting me, I can't believe the Packers lost. Hey, look at this stat line. Hey, look at this play. And I'm sitting here like, this is unbelievable. Now, I will admit this is my own fault because I was texting them after week one. I was like, you guys couldn't beat the Bucks, right? I was, I, believe me, I started this thing, but now I kind of really want it to be over, especially as the Packers have faded away a little bit, right? That's a prime example right there. We like to talk about the things that make us happy. We like to talk about the things that bring us joy, right? For me, I don't talk about Star Wars character, but I talk about football and I talk about other things, right? It's just something that's really innate inside of us. But what I think is really cool is it's not just us that does that, but it's also our God that does that. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, he has things that make him happy. He has things that bring him joy, and he talks to us about that. So today's message is continuing our Gentle and Lowly series. Gentle and Lowly is a book by Dane Ortland, and I'll tell you, it's a really good book, and I know it's a good book because I actually read it. I'm not much of a book reader. It's usually not my passion, but when I find a book that I really like, I read it. And so this summer, Kevin and I read it together with our interns, and it really was just an awesome experience. And I love this book for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is because it's so well-written. Dane Orland does this great job of painting this picture inside your mind of what Jesus' heart is for people, what his heart is for the people that he serves, right? And so 
If you are interested, we are selling the book out there. It's $11. It's just a way for you to get into this series, to understand what we're talking about, to get a really good idea of what Jesus' heart is. But if you don't want to buy a book, that's totally okay. We also have a Bible plan. It is a gentle and lowly Bible plan on the Bible app. So if you go there, you can get on the plan. It is 14 days, and it's just 14 days about the book. And so it kind of gives you an idea of the writing that Dane Orland uses. It gives you an idea of, of kind of who he is while he writes, right? And I told you, I like this book for a variety of reasons. The first reason is simply because he's a good writer and it's interesting to read and it's exciting and it's poetic and it explains God's heart for us. But the second reason is because it's super biblically based. Every chapter in the book is connected to a verse. So it's not just that he's giving you his insight, but he's giving you his insight based on what the Bible tells us. And one of the best early chapters is the one I'll be talking about today and it's called The Happiness of Christ. And the happiness of Christ. What is Jesus happy about in his heart? What makes him excited? And it's simply that Jesus is happy when we come to him. That's simply what it's about. And and he spends page after page explaining what the happiness of Christ looks like. And he does it based off Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And that is the text we're going to look at first today. And it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This verse is awesome. This verse is exciting. It is something that should get us excited. See, first of all, because it says that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. What does that mean, right? It means that Jesus gave us a way to come to him. He gave us an opportunity to have a faith at all. He's the pioneer. He provided the way for us to do it, but he's also the perfecter. He is the legitimate reason that we can come to him. But that's not where the sentence ends. It's not simply that the sentence says that we can have a faith, but it's that Jesus has joy when we do. And that is an amazing thing. Mainly because I think a lot of us, we don't look at it that way. See, we we might understand that Jesus gives us an opportunity for a faith. And we might even have a faith. But we have this misunderstanding that somehow Jesus, he, he gave us this faith. He wants us to be a part of his family, but he does it kind of from afar, right? He, he, it isn't a full embrace. Um, it, it's more like a handshake when you, when you do a business deal. He's, you know, he, he got us over the line and, and you shake his hand and, and that's about it, right? We, we tend to think that he's holding his nose towards us, right? As, as though we just barely scraped over the line of eternity. We barely made it over into heaven, but he accepts that we're there, right? But this verse is about showing us that that is not how it is. Jesus is not like us. When we do something good for people, We sometimes are begrudging for why we do it, but Jesus is not like that. He does it because it's the joy of his heart. He does it because he's so interested in you and I. See, I told you I like this book for a variety of reasons, right? First one, it's a beautiful book. The second one is because it's biblically based, but the third reason is really the reason that I love this book, and it's because Dane Ortland uses analogies. And analogies, storytelling, all of those things are things that I enjoy, and I love telling stories. I love telling 
stories that are way too long, and I get to the end, and I was like, I don't remember the point. I don't remember why I told you that story, but I'm sure there's a point in there. I talked long enough. There has to be something in there that you can take away. The nice thing is Dane Orland does it in his book. He's a little bit more purposeful with that, and the seminal analogy he uses in this chapter is that of a doctor, and this doctor has dedicated his life to one thing, and it is bringing a cure to people in the farthest reaches of the world. And what we have to understand is this doctor is already independently wealthy. He has everything he could ever need. And he's already done all these other amazing things. So he's not doing this because he wants money or he wants fame. He simply is doing it because he has a passion for changing the lives of people in the other part of the world. He's comfortable here. He has everything he wants. And yet he has this burning desire to change the lives of other people. And these people have a terminal illness. They will die. So what does he do? He, he starts to develop this cure. He has these antibodies. He creates a way for them to be healed. And then what he does is he leaves the comfort of the world that he's in, and he goes to the other side of the world, to the deepest, darkest parts, and he offers this cure. And he says, hey, this cure, this thing will transform your life, and I want you to take it. And the response that he gets from these people is not over the top. It's not emphatic, but it's, it's really a lot of fear, right? Pe- people are scared. They don't, they don't trust him. They don't believe in him. They don't believe in his cure. Some people are really interested in, hey, you know, I've been living with this for so long. I think I can just manage it myself. I know it's terminal, but I'll just take care of it myself. Other people, they just don't believe. They just can't get over the line. They can't believe that, that somebody would do this for them, and, and they, just, they just don't trust him. But finally, a few brave men, a few people in this crowd, they step forward and they say, hey, I'm willing to take this cure. I'm willing to change my life. And they do. And the doctor begins to administer this cure. And as he does it for one person, you can see the smile on his face. You can see the joy in his heart. It radiates out of him. And as more and more people take this cure, more and more joy comes on the face of the doctor. He is so excited because it was the whole reason he was there. As each person takes it, he gets more and more filled with joy. It doesn't matter that not everybody wanted to take it. He's just happy that each and every person that came took it and his joy increases exponentially. He offered it to everybody, but he's so excited when anybody decides to take it. I love that analogy. I love that analogy because it paints a picture in our mind of how Jesus is. See, Jesus is the doctor, and we are the people that are riddled with a terminal illness. And our terminal illness is sin. And we can make no bones about that. Sin is a terminal illness. The Bible is clear about that. Sin leads to death. But what's kind of missed sometimes when we talk about sin is is we think that's an eternity. There's, There's terminal death in eternity but there's also suffering along the way. See, sin separates us from God. It pushes us away because God can't be with sin. And so sin separates us, and that's the first part of the suffering, but that's really just the start of it. It pushes away from God, but it also pushes away from each other. See, sin has physical consequences in our world. Every time we lie, we cheat, and we steal, there are physical ramifications for sin. So we're separated from God, we're separated from each other, but honestly, we're even separated from ourselves because we have to deal with the the brokenness, the loneliness, the push away from the community, the push away from the communion with God, and in that moment, we suffer 
until we die. I'm going to be honest, that's kind of a bummer of a message, right? If it just ended there today, there wouldn't be a lot of joy in that message. But that's where the joy truly comes from, is the fact that the story doesn't end there. That's where we're done. We can't do anything, right? We're just stuck in that sin. But what's amazing is that we have a doctor that wants to give us a cure. He wants to solve our terminal illness. And that is Jesus. And so, so many times we, we get we get this misperception that what we, we have sin and Jesus solved that. He gave us a cure, but we think, well, he did that out of some obligation. He, he felt like he had to. He didn't really want to. And now he tacitly accepts us. He holds his nose. But what we have to understand is that he fully embraces us. He is so happy that we have made this decision. He is so happy that we have decided that we are going to take his cure. Jesus is happy when we come to him, and he's happy when we come to him again and again and again. See, we continue to fail, but we continue to come to him, and he doesn't get tired, and he doesn't think, oh my gosh, again, they're still making this mistake, but he's just happy that we recognize, one, that we have sinned, but also, B, that he can do something about it. Jesus is happy when we come to him. But let's go back to this verse. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, and let's look. Because Jesus is not just happy when we come to him, but he also is willing to go through suffering in order to have the joy of us being with him. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow, wow. Right? Sometimes I think we read the Bible because we're trying to finish a Bible plan because we think that that's what we're supposed to do. And so we read through these verses so quickly because we want to check that box off for the day. We know that there's value, but we don't spend time to reflect on the verses and the power that's inside of them. So let's spend time looking at this verse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This verse is letting us know that Jesus did all of this stuff for the joy set before him. And the joy set before him is you and I. The joy set before him is everybody that chooses to believe, everybody that turns away from the sin, everyone that pushes off the sin that so easily entangles and runs to him. That is the joy set before him. And we should be astonished by that. We should be thankful for that. And yet we shouldn't forget the second part of that verse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think sometimes we forget about the cross. We forget about what the cross actually means, but also what actually happened. See, I think we're good at certain times of the year of understanding the cross. I think Easter season, right, we come to Good Friday and we wear black and we're mournful and we're quiet and we're contemplative. And maybe we watch The Passion of the Christ and we see visually what it might have looked like for Jesus to go through it. And we we listen to sermons where they talk about the 10-inch nails and we think, wow, that's really big. I can't imagine having the the pain of, of all that stuff happening. And yet, I think most of the time, we forget about what the cross was how horrific it truly was. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The physical sufferings of the cross are obvious, right? He was bruised and he was beaten. He was mocked and they put a crown of thorns on his head. They forced it on his head and he was so bruised and so beaten. Mark 15 tells us he couldn't even carry his cross to Golgotha. 
So finally, they strap to somebody else. They get it up there. They put him on that cross. They put the 10-inch nails right into his hands, and he's left to die. He's left to suffocate on a tree. I don't have to go over the physical sufferings of the cross. That is something we all can understand. We can all imagine what that would feel like. And yet the physical suffering is just where it starts. There was also a spiritual component. There was a spiritual suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The spiritual suffering was immense. Jesus lived a perfect life. He had never done anything wrong. And yet in one moment, in one instance, every sin from today, from yesterday, from eternity was on him. He had been perfect. He had never felt the spiritual weight of sin in his life. And in one moment, it was all put on him. 1 Peter 2.24 describes this to us. And it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In his body on the cross. There was a spiritual suffering that Jesus went through in this moment. He felt the weight of sin, something that we feel, something that we know, and yet sometimes we're blind to because we felt this way since birth. We felt this way our entire life. We understand what sin felt like, but Jesus had never experienced it because he had not sinned. He had not sinned. He had never done anything wrong, and yet in this moment, he's holding on to everything that everybody has ever done. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The physical suffering is obvious. The spiritual suffering is a little less obvious, but it's the emotional suffering that might have been the worst. Jesus had 12 disciples. They were his closest friends. For three years, he dedicated himself to this group of people. But when, they, when he needed them, they weren't there. When he was arrested, they scattered. One of his closest friends, Peter, says, I, I will never deny you. I will never say that I don't know you. And less than 24 hours later, what does he say? I don't know him. You've got the wrong guy. I've never met him. Most of his disciples didn't even see him die. They were absent in this moment. Jesus loved them so much. The beginning of the passion story starts in John 13. And John 13, 1 tells us that Jesus saw them and he loved them and he loved them to the end, but that love was not reciprocated. The emotional suffering was ginormous from his friends who had abandoned him. But it wasn't just from his friends. But it was also a loss of connection with his father. And Matthew 27 describes that to us. Matthew 27, 46 says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shebektani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, biblical scholars, they understand He's quoting a psalm, but he's quoting a psalm of lament. He's in anguish. He's saying, God, where are you? Please turn back towards me. He had never felt this disconnection from his father for an eternity. And in this moment, he's physically beaten, he's spiritually beaten, and emotionally, he is weighed down. Every bad thing is happening, but it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is me and you. And we have to understand that Jesus was willing to go through suffering because he's so passionate about you and I. And we can never forget the cross. We can never forget what he went through. But we should also understand he went through that because he loves us so much. And he wants you so much. He wasn't obligated. He knew the joy. He knew what he had to give up. And now he was ready to go through the worst 
thing in his life. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if I could do any other thing, I'll do that thing. But if I can't, then I will go to that cross and I will do it because I love them so much. That was his mission. That was his passion. And that is his joy. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is you and I. It's an amazing truth that Jesus is happy when we come to him. It's an amazing truth that he was willing to suffer for the joy of being with us. And the most amazing truth is not only that he did all of those things, but also that now he stands there day after day and he knocks. Day after day and he knocks. Week after week, year after year, he stands there and he knocks on the door. He says, I want you to be with me. Revelation 3.20 tells us that. It says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Imagine this. Imagine this, that Jesus wants us so badly that he's willing to go through all of this suffering, all of this heartache, the hardest thing anybody would ever do for all of eternity. And now he wants you to be a part of it. And that's why he stands there day after day and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks. And he knows you're on the other side and he knows maybe you hear him, maybe you don't, but he's desperate for you and not in a sad way. Not as if we're looking down on him because he's not being let in, but he's so excited because you might open that door, because you might turn that handle and you'll see the joy of Jesus, the joy of somebody who gave up everything to have you. It's an incredible sight. Imagine every other God and every other religion. Are they desperate for people in that same way? No, they just wait. They wait for you to figure it out. They wait for you to be interested in them. And they say, hey, I'm too, I'm too much higher. I'm so much higher than you. I'll wait for you to come worship me. But instead, we have a God, a real God, Jesus, who stands at the door day after day, and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks because he wants us so badly. He wants us so badly. He is ready, willing, and able to embrace us, and he wants us to open that door. I told you, I like to tell stories. I love to tell stories. And this is a story that is uh, it's heartfelt for me. It's personal for me. These are people that I actually know, and it's a story of a father and his son. And uh, this father is a devout Christian. He's a great man. He raised all of his kids to be Christians. He raised them in the faith, and he has one adult son who is not a Christian. He's not an enemy to Christ. He doesn't hate God. He just doesn't believe. And so this father told me, he's like, every time I see my adult son, every time I'm with him, I share the gospel with him. And that was convicting for me. How many people have we shared the gospel with? We said, hey, you have to know about the God I know. I'm not interested. Okay, sounds good. Most transformational story, right? We say that, we believe that, and yet we say, hey, are you interested? Nope, sounds good, sounds good. Well, you know me, if you ever want your life transformed, I'm right here. That's what we do. But this father is not like that. He says, every time I see my son, I have to tell him the story. I have to tell him about Jesus. I have to tell him that on the other side of that door is transformation. On the other side of that door is eternal life. On the other side of that door is being a part of an eternal family. And I know that my son doesn't believe, and so I will not give up. I will say it every single time. And he's not pushy with it. He's not forceful with it. But he's insistent upon it because it is true. And so he says it day after day. Every time he sees his son, he tells him about Jesus. He tells him about the gospel story. And that, that story to me is is tear-jerking, it's heartwarming, it, it moves me, right? It's, it's an incredible real-life picture 
of what it looks like to invite someone day after day, year after year, not see results and say, I will not give up. And yet that story pales in comparison to the God that stands day after day, ready, willing, and able to embrace us. That physical story, the dad that we can see in our head who's so loving, who says, I will not give up on my son, that is simply a derivative. It's simply a copy. It is almost a cheap imitation of the God that I know who does that every single day, who is desperate for you to open that door and to walk into new life. See, we have a God that is happy in his heart when we turn to him. And he's willing to suffer for the joys of being with us. And he stands there day after day, week after week, and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks. And he's ready, willing, and able to embrace us. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible truth. It is something that we should think about day after day. We should not forget the horrors of the cross, but we also shouldn't forget the joy that Jesus has He doesn't hold his nose. He doesn't coldly embrace us, but it's a full embrace. It's a loving embrace. It's an invitation to a new life. We're going to move into a moment of reflection. Our our worship team is going to come up, and they're going to play, and it's going to be a time where you can talk to God. And some of you in this room, you've heard this story a thousand times. And i got to say, I'm excited you're here for a thousand and one. Because it's that transformational, it's that important, it's something we should think about every single day. There's some people that have heard this a thousand times, there's some people that might never have heard it, and might never have responded, and have, have thought, maybe this isn't for me. I hear all these things, but it's just not for me. Let me tell you, it is absolutely for you, and Jesus is waiting on the other side. The band's going to come up, and it's going to be an opportunity for you to reflect. It's going to be a moment for you to think about what Jesus done and to have a conversation with him. And that conversation, in a lot of ways, is very simple. And in a lot of ways, in every way, it's incredibly significant. And that conversation is just three easy steps. The first one is about admitting to God, I have sinned. I have sinned. And that is the first step. If you want a relationship with Christ, if you want him to be the savior in your life, that is the first step, is simply admitting that you have a problem, admitting that you have this disease, you have this terminal illness that you cannot fix yourself. That is the first step, admitting it. But the second step is saying, God, I believe that you can do something about it. I believe that you came and that you died and that you want me to be a part of your family. I think there's a lot of people out there that will admit that, there's bad things in this world and that they've done bad things and they're a part of it. I don't think there is as many people that are willing to say, God, I believe that you can do something about it, but let's make no bones about it. God can and did do something about it on the cross and we should believe in that. So it's as simple as admitting you have sinned. It's also about believing that Jesus can do something about that sin. And finally, it's confessing to God that you believe in that. And that can start with a prayer in this moment of reflection, but we also believe that it can extend beyond that. And so I'm going to invite everybody in this room, whether you've heard this a thousand times or you've never heard it before, I invite you to have that conversation with God, to remember what he did. And with that, I'm going to pray for this moment of reflection. Dear God, Thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your son. 
Thank you for Jesus who came and he died, but he didn't do it out of obligation. He didn't do it because he had to do it, but he did it because he loves us so much. And he wants the joy of having us be with him forever. Let us never forget the cross. Let's never forget what he did for us in that moment. And God, allow us in this moment of reflection to respond to you, to respond to what you did in that moment, to say, God, I believe, I believe that I have sinned, but I also believe that you did something about it. God, I invite your presence in this moment. I invite these conversations to be conversations directly with you.